It's great to have Bruce back for us for what's going to be a, a very critical year in US politics. So as well as having uh, Bruce back, and of course Bruce Shapiro, contributing editor with The Nation magazine and famously the exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. But we co-star on this occasion with... Uh, the marvellous James Fellows. James is an author and journalist. His newsletter is called Breaking the News, and uh, you will remember we had a very cordial exchange with James last year about Jimmy Carter, for whom he was a speechwriter for many years. But to you first, Bruce, Happy New Year, insofar as that is possible. We'll be speaking on the eve of the New Hampshire primary, which will see Trump going up against Nikki Haley after the other candidates, including Ron DeSantis, have pulled out. Bruce, is there any point in Nikki Haley continuing? <laughs> well, we will know a lot more in 24 hours. But I look, I don't think we're going to learn much about Republicans from the New Hampshire primary. Is there a point in Nikki Haley continuing in, in the likelihood of her getting the Republican nomination? Um, unless something happens, un, something unforeseen happens to Donald Trump, probably not. We will learn something important, though, um, about a critical part of the electorate, and that's uh, unaffiliated voters, independent voters. Uh, in New Hampshire, independent voters outnumber uh, Republicans or Democrats. Let's circle back to the, the topic of independence shortly, Bruce. But, uh, James, any point in the primaries continuing? So I think that there is – you have to always allow for the unexpected in American politics and, and life in general. So we don't know for sure that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee, but that certainly seems what what is likely. Nikki Haley at this point, again, we're speaking just before the first votes are being cast in New Hampshire. It will depend on whether she is um, further humiliated or not by the, the results as they come in. And the main <laughs> thing that keeps her, can her candidacy going is whether she can raise money to keep on to her gnome state of South Carolina, et cetera. So we will see. James, any chance of a vice presidency being on the offer for, well, Haley or DeSantis? <laughs> One would, would, would think not, but again, allowing for the, the unpredictable. Trump has seemed to warm up. I, I was doing actually a post uh, today called Kissing the Ring about how once people decide to show obeisance to him, then suddenly his, his attitude towards them, uh, Sun King-like, radiates with positivity. So anything is possible, but it seems that, that there's been enough sniping from both DeSantis and Haley that they would not want this job and he probably would not want it for them either. But DeSantis has been a ring kisser. Any chance that Haley would echo this gesture? Oh, I so think, I think there's the near certainty. <laughs> What do you think, James? <laughs> oh, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I saw, I heard actually from some New Hampshire radio guy today, a defense of what looks like servility from all of the Republicans saying, well, it's a normal thing in in uh, presidential elections that a party coalesces uh, behind its leader. And, and people who had opposed Joe Biden four years ago in the primaries all lined up to support him. So that is a more respectable and normal way to to describe what looks like the Vichy Republic being reconstituted in front of us. I, I think the, the the important word that James used a minute ago, though, is 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 domination. 
Right. What we are seeing with not only DeSantis, um, but uh, I think in some ways most particularly Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, a parade of others, uh, with the sole exception thus far of Chris Christie, is this wholesale self-abasement and humiliation, right, which is the hallmark of Trump. And that's what makes the, the vice presidential question so unusual, because if he feels he's sufficiently humiliated, Ron DeSantis, yeah, it could be. I think <laughs> Tim Scott is probably more likely. Elise Stefanik, the uh, sort of rising star of the Trump right um, from New York State in Congress, uh, who who can claim a couple of university presidents on her belt from debates about anti-Semitism over the last couple of months. There's a whole lot going on there that will feed into the entertainment spectacle that Trump always makes of who his nominee is going to be, right? But but look, Philip, just to go back to this other thing I was saying, what's important about New Hampshire this year in particular is that independent voters can vote in the Republican primary. One thing we will learn is the sense of motivation that Republican-leaning independent voters have. If they break for Trump, that tells us something very important about what's going on in the suburban and independent electorate going later in the year. If Trump wins, but Haley succeeds in pulling a fair number of unaffiliated voters, that would be of concern to the Trump campaign because the big unknown in all of this is how suburban and unaffiliated voters are going to break. And that's the area that Trump has been most worried about from the beginning. So I, I think it matters for how we view politics going on in the next few months. It doesn't really affect, um, except for the, as James said, the unexpected, it doesn't affect the likely outcome for Nikki Haley. James's uh, metaphor of ring kissing reminds me, of course, of uh, papal audiences, but also the opening scenes in The Godfather. Now, Bruce, what are the risks for the Donald in 2024 that could prevent him from running? There are, first of all, of course, all of these looming criminal charges, the, the multiple trials that he has going, all the polls show that a conviction is likely to turn voters away from Trump, even some who would have voted for him before. Will any of the trials be wrapped up? Well, that's the game that, that the Donalds team is playing, right? I think the other real vulnerability that Trump has, both vulnerability and potentially a strength, it cuts both ways, actually, is not who's voting in these primaries, but who's not. I, I was looking at the numbers for the Iowa caucus, uh, which, you know, was no surprise. Trump walked away with it, crushed DeSantis and Haley uh, in in the numbers. But if you looked at turnout in the Iowa caucuses, which is a Republican Party only event, um, it was way, way down from 2016. It was but Bruce, half. to be fair, the weather was atrocious. It's Iowa. The weather's always atrocious, right? Um, as atrocious as the weather was, it was down more than 50% from eight years ago. The total, and in fact, the number of Republicans in Iowa have grown considerably in the last eight years. 
the number of those actually showing up at the caucuses was down to, I think, only about 50,000 from the entire state compared to 115,000 or something the last time. What that says is, first of all, that Trump has, and we know this, this core of very, very loyal supporters. But it also says that even most Republicans, six out of seven Republicans, didn't care enough in what was supposedly an existentially important contest for the future of you know the Republican nominee to show up to caucuses in their own communities. That may or may not be predictive. It says that a lot of people, though, are tuned out. And I think that's both a, a risk for Trump, and yet it's also potentially a risk for Biden, because if Democratic enthusiasm is way down too, that serves Trump well. James, speed hump for Trump. Can you think of any? We have to distinguish clearly, as Bruce was saying, between the battle for the Republican Party, which is more and more just the party of MAGA and the party of Trump, and the fact that there is a national election to be won after that. And to me, the trends of all the elections that have happened since the one in 2016, where Donald Trump you know, ended up as president, all those elections, with with a vanishingly small exception, a case of exceptions, have broken in a quote surprisingly unquote uh, progressive way, and and I think that's been at an accelerated um, pace after the the infamous Dobbs ruling uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, where referenda in places like Kansas and Wisconsin have gone for abortion rights and for uh, progressive uh, people, and so I think that. The drama we're seeing now is Trump intensifying his control, tighter and tighter control on what seems to be a smaller and smaller group. And as Bruce pointed out, Trump is never going to have a more favorable electorate than the one he had in Iowa. It is white. It is old. It is rural. It is relatively non-college education educated. And there only 56,000 people voted for him in, in Iowa, just 51 percent of the vote. I think that augurs poorly for him in the long run in the general election. Well, what, look, what we're witnessing now is the second act of a purge of the Republican Party, which began in 2016. Uh, and Haley and the money behind Haley, the other Chris Christie and those folks are Republicans in denial of this purge. Um, I'm old enough, and actually James is old enough too, to have lived through the last great Republican purge, which was in the 1980-84 period, when the moderate and liberal wing of the Republican Party was e forcibly evicted by the rising star of Ronald Reagan and Reagan conservatism. And now it's the vestiges of Reagan conservatism who find themselves cast into the gutter. But as James was saying, the very tactics, the very politics that allow Trump to purge his enemies and dominate the party in the primaries are exactly those which threaten to alienate large numbers of voters in the general election. So it's a complicated game going on here. Back to you, James Fellows. What about Biden and uh, his run in November? What do you think are his strengths and vulnerabilities? 
So to I'm going to just divert for a few seconds before coming to, to Biden, just to follow on on uh, Bruce's point about what's happened to to the Republican Party. There are no more powerful witnesses than Republicans like Chris Christie or Nikki Haley in some of her speeches or other of the candidates saying that they know that if they strap themselves to Trump, they are continuing a losing pattern. You know, Nikki Haley made one of her riffs that Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the eight uh, past eight um presidential elections. For Joe Biden, <laughs> there is a sort of, uh, I am not personally old enough to remember this this one, but this is something that I, often comes to mind. I think of the 1944 presidential election in the United States, where one of the candidates <laughs> clearly was too old. That was Franklin Roosevelt, who died four months after the election, but he was the right candidate, you know, because the alternative, you know, was the middle of the war, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. That is not an image that Joe Biden wants to use. <laughs> But I think a version of that is essentially a Democratic calculation that Joe Biden is not many people's first choice at the moment, even though I'd argue he's been a very effective and successful uh, president so far. It's not, as Biden puts it, it's not between him and the almighty, it's him and the alternative. And the alternative looks like it's going to be Donald Trump. Okay, Bruce. And I think it, it, it's important to say, Philip, that for all of Biden's many weaknesses and for all of the dissatisfaction that many in the Republican uh, in the Democratic Party feel with him the fact is that he is the guy he is the guy who defeated Donald Trump he is the guy who knows on some level how to do that you know Biden is the man with a track record at defeating Donald Trump and finally going into this contest, that's going to be what the Democratic Party will bank on, I think. Now, Bruce, back to the topic you raised earlier, and this is this fascinating variety of independence. In my state, in Connecticut, where I'm speaking from now, in New Hampshire and many others, um, unaffiliated voters outnum out now outnumber either party, right? And there's a lot of political science thought spent and a lot of campaign finance money spent on trying to figure out whether independent voters tend to break Republican, tend to break Democrat. They have been a, the key, a key constituency along with urban Democrats in these progressive successes that James was talking about a few minutes ago. They're folks who tend to be economically somewhat conservative, but socially more moderate and more liberal, and particularly on issues of reproductive freedom, abortion rights, the Dobbs decision, etc. They are a constituency that is often powerfully motivated by that dynamic. Take us through the uh, the shopping list. We've got uh, Joe Manchin. We've got the uh, eccentric Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, for heaven's sake, and Jill Stein. Well, if, if you're talking about independent presidential candidates, third party candidates, it's a, it's a, it's <laughs> yeah, as always. Now a, we start worrying. <laughs> this yeah, is the, yeah, the well, thing to worry about. You know, Senator Joe Manchin, who has been Joe Biden's biggest frustration, the Democrat who stands in the way of a lot of Biden's legislation uh, and now is not running for re-election, has been flirting with something called the No Labels Movement, a campaign built around Senator, former Senator, former 
uh, vice presidential candidate Joseph Lieberman, right? Joe Lieberman has a long history as my senator once upon a time and my attorney general in Connecticut once upon a time of running to the right of Democrats. And the two of them have been making noise about, well, don't we need a centrist alternative? And then you have Cornell West professor uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with the conspiracy vote, Jill Stein with the conspiracy upon conspiracy vote in the Green Party. Um, these are fact fractional figures in most years. The history, however, of independent and marginal candidates suggests that they can have an impact. We think back to Ralph Nader, right? Um, but we also can think further back than that, and most more consequentially, to Ross Perot, who tried to leap on that allegedly centrist, um, no labels sort of terrain in 1992, probably pulled the Republican-leaning independents, and played a crucial part in the election of Bill Clinton, um, which left a lot of Republicans pretty unhappy. My guess is that Manchin and the No Labels movement are not going to mount a campaign, and that will leave us uh, as alternatives with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the anti-vax vote. Um, Cornell West, who will be if the alternative is Donald Trump, is going to be in a very difficult position among his own core progressive constituency and the Green Party's Jill Stein. James, what do you think of this uh, cluster? So I, I think it's important to recognize um, that the role of independence in American presidential politics is purely a spoiler role. And I speak as somebody who once worked for Ralph Nader back when I was in uh, college and thereafter and and pled with him not to run to maintain his campaign in, in 2000 as he did. The last um, candidate who was neither a Republican nor a Democrat to get even one electoral vote was George Wallace in 1968. The last time a new party arose was Abraham Lincoln's in, in 1860. And so there just are structural and other reasons why it's going to be either a Republican or a Democrat who becomes uh, president next time. And I think uh, that's what the no labels people are in denial about. And really the, the main thing I worry about as somebody who does not want to see Donald Trump return to office is what the no labels people, what mischief they might get up to, because I believe their funding is more right wing than it is left wing. And uh, but interestingly, they've not disclosed their funding, but that seems to be the, the pattern of it. James, you and I both have a connection to uh, to Ralph Nader. I was uh, one of the pair that uh, got him to Australia very early in his career and like you urged him not to run as a spoiler. But he did have his effect, didn't he? He, unfortunately, I believe, will be remembered um, mainly for what happened in the 2000 election, where, in my mind, he was the difference by campaigning in Florida and, and a few other crucial states, including uh, New Hampshire. But he, his message, which even now in his late 80s, he propounds very vigorously, is the need for people to be involved in their lives. And uh, he motivated a whole group of young people and people around the country and the world. So it is tragic in many ways that he took the, the path he did with the Green Party and now 24 years ago because he did so and much it else. It, 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 yeah, and it should be said that Nader has been very clear this year that he sees defeating Donald Trump as the key political priority for the country. Um, so he, whatever other fractional politics yes. or factional politics are going on, Ralph is not part of those. 
Bruce, I take some comfort from the fact that Joe has been a bit more aggressive in his public utterances against the Donald. Well, he, you know, you think back to uh, 2020, one of the Biden lines that sticks in my head is, I'm going to beat him like a drum. And the thing is, for all of the, I think, quite ageist parodies of Biden's weaknesses, most of which have always been characteristic of him, they're not a function of age, when he wants to be really forceful, he can be. He can bring a kind of passion and moral force that is quite comprehensible to middle-class and working-class Americans. I don't think he's afraid of Donald Trump. And I think that counts for something in the, in the public arena once you get past the nomination phase and it's a head-to-head race. Right? He also has a huge um, fundraising base right now. You know, there are also some significant disabilities. There are some significant weaknesses. He's got uh, young voters who aren't identified with him, who will need some extra motivation if they're going to turn out, and in some cases are feeling quite alienated because of his ineffectiveness in the Israel-Gaza conflict, Israel-Hamas conflict. There's diminishing enthusiasm or at least diminishing attention in um, among voters of color. And that's something that, that you already are beginning to see Kamala Harris and other advocates come out and begin to ramp up. There are some places where his coalition is weaker than one would like if you were his strategist. But I, the, the fact is he does have considerable force of character and a huge machine that he can bring up against a Donald Trump who has pushed himself ever further into the margins as long as the base, the Democratic base and unaffiliated voters who care about social issues can be turned out. James, you've been uh, writing, well, complaining about uh, the coverage of the election process by mainstream media. What would you like to see happen? I, I would like to see, and I imagine Bruce is on the, the same side here, there's been um, less less imagining that the the news that should be conveyed is a sort of political handicapper's view of how is this going to play with that electoral uh, group or whatever, and more what these candidates are, are saying, what they have done, what they would do in office. And I think there has been some shift in that from the last time Donald Trump ran, where obsession with Hillary Clinton's emails famously dwarfed everything else that was written about her in, in the press. And uh, so I think there is some slow but um, too slow grappling with uh, how to deal with an outlier like Donald Trump. You know, you know, Philip, we, we, as journalists, we often get stuck on and should be stuck on how to deal with a candidate who just lies all the time and how do we, how do we say what he says without contributing to falsehood and lies. But the other trap that we fall into is that for Trump, the whole world is Oh, it's the world of professional wrestling. His whole campaign is run as as the in the in the uh, polarized black and white dominance or weakness 
entertainment model of professional wrestling. And I think when <laughs> coverage inadvertently falls into obsessing with that and not, as James says, asking what people's stances are, that's what feeds Donald, right? When it becomes about the entertainment spectacle and, oh, Trump is domineering, oh, Biden is doddering, that's wrestling match stuff. That's not helpful, and that isn't actually what motivates voters. I can't unsee that uh, wrestling parallel and the thought of someone <laughs> being sat on by, uh, by Donald Trump. James, what about foreign policy issues? Will they play any significant role in the campaign? Um, they will, but I say something about wrestling first. Now, look at foreign policy. If this is not yet widespread knowledge in Australia, it is crucial for your listeners to find the clip from maybe 20 years ago of Donald Trump and Vince McMahon, a pro wrestling promoter in WrestleMania, where they had some kind of bet and Trump, it was the most primal kind of domination where Trump <laughs> pinned McMahon down and shaved his head. And it just was, it was, it was the id, it was, uh, you know, Jane Goodall chimpanzees, which he actually made the comparison to me, um, for turning to foreign policy. <laughs> I think that, you know, there, there are there are wars going on all around the world. And I think the one of most political consequence potentially for Biden to say nothing of its human and global consequence is, as Bruce was saying, his management of this disaster um, between Israel and, and, and Hamas, where he has staked everything on all out support of uh, Netanyahu and and of of Israel's right to defend itself, but then has been putting pressure on them to uh, to uh, to behave differently from, from what they are doing. That is the one of most most um, electoral significance. But the Ukraine war is is of course ongoing, and uh, you know you can go down the list. I think that, that, that probably the one that will count most in the election, just from those terms, is uh, is Hamas and Israel. We've just the, had the, a wrestling match rather than a superiorette. <laughs> And our heavyweight <laughs> contenders were Bruce Shapiro, Bruce, contributing editor with The Nation and exec director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. And also uh, pounding the canvas was James <laughs> Fellows, writer and journalist and author of a newsletter called Breaking the News, which is highly recommended. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.